good evening or good morning, everyone, and uh, everyone else out there on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. You know, we used to say that this is the time of night when anything can happen, but of course, if you watched any news for the last several years, you know that uh, it's kind of crept out from these halls and is now spreading across the planet, and anything can happen anytime. And so tonight we're going to be turning to, again, one of my favorite subjects, can't imagine why, the subject of the planet Mars. Um, as, as I said in my promo earlier this afternoon, uh, Mars has been an obsession by Americans and, and by metonymy, most of the human race for at least 100 plus years. And so tonight we're going to be delving into why we've got an extraordinarily interesting opportunity through a great writer, who's my guest for the next three hours, to kind of delve into, in the form of his latest book called The Big Mars Book, why we have been so focused, why we've been so obsessed with this distant reddish dot. And uh, we're going to get into all that in a few minutes. So let me get kind of hit the high spots of some news, which is basically oriented toward Mars tonight. If you look at... Uh, uh, our items in radio with pictures and for those folks who are new to the show I can tell you very easily how to get there what you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com that's our URL that's our homepage click on tonight's banner with that very funny looking creature with the big feet the large head the long proboscis the antenna that's what some folks many many years ago used to imagine that Martians uh, might look like Anyway, um, click on that. It's for August 9th. It has Mark Hartsman's name there in nice big letters. Click on that. That will take you to his guest page. And if you just uh, click on Fast Items under that uh, banner, click on My Fast Items. It will take you to My Items. The first three items are relevant to Mars tonight. As you know, a few days ago, for the first time ever, the United Arab Emirates, um, representing the entire Arab world, launched its first spacecraft to Mars. It's an unmanned, I probably should say these days, uncrewed spacecraft. It's a, it's a, it's a robot. It's not going to land, it's going into orbit. Um, it was launched from Japan because the UAE does not have launch vehicles, but there's such a mix and match these days in the space industry that if you build a, a spacecraft, you can go shopping around the world and find someone who will launch it for you if you pay them, you know, an appropriate fee. So the United Arab Emirates, which insisted, by the way, on not borrowing or using other people's hardware for the spacecraft, they insisted that their own people develop, test, refine test again so it's really a uae spacecraft but developing a launch vehicle capable of sending a spacecraft to mars is a little bit much for the first time out of the box so they went to japan and the japanese um offered them a very um you know significant price reduction and they launched successfully a couple weeks ago and they're now on their way they're not going to land. As I said before, they're not going to land. They're going going go into this very elongated orbit, and they've got sensors on the spacecraft that are basically looking at the Martian climate, at the Martian weather, to try to characterize the distribution, among other things, of water vapor in the Martian atmosphere. Because, of course, water vapor is extraordinarily important in the context of looking for life. I mean, as you're going to hear in the next three hours... You cannot mention the word Mars in any context without people immediately asking, is there life? Was there ever life? Could there be life? Will we find life? How will we import life? How will we prevent life on Mars in terms of quarantine from coming back and destroying life on it? That kind of thing. So Mars and life are kind of like synonymous. The second mission, which left uh, a few days after the, uh, the Arab mission, is from China. The Chinese have, have launched an extraordinarily ambitious mission called Tianwen-1. Tianwen stands for, I mean, this is so lyrical, it stands for 
questions of heaven or questioning heaven. I mean, they the Chinese really have it down when it comes to naming uh, spacecraft. Remember the Chang series, the goddess of the moon, Chang 3, which landed several years ago, I think back in 2013, on the front side of the moon in one of those lyrical places that we've heard about in terms of the moon for hundreds of years, Mare Imbrium. And then uh, a few years later, um, they sent another spacecraft, not totally a duplicate, but basically the same hardware with some different experiments to land for the first time by anyone on the far side of the moon. Remember, it's not the dark side because the moon rotates once every month. So every two weeks, every place on Mars, on Mars, on the moon, except for right near the poles, because of the tilt of the axis of, of the moon, gets to see sunlight. So you have the near side, which is the side we can see. Then you have the far side, the side that we never see, because the moon spins on its axis in the same period that it takes to go around the Earth. So we essentially only see one side. Now, there's something called libration, which has to do with the fact that the orbit of the moon is not a circle. It's an ellipse. And elliptical orbits, when the object is near the near point in the orbit, they move faster, Kepler's laws, than when they're at the far point. So the rotation of, of the moon is constant. The orbital you know, rate of, of motion is not. So we actually get to peek over the left hand and the right hand side of the moon during this you know, month-long orbit. So we roughly see about 60% of the moon's surface, not 50-50, if it was an exactly circular orbit and the rotations and the orbital period were synced. So we get to peek over the left and right-hand sides, and there have been reconstructions going back to the days of photography where people were looking, because of course those views are very elongated, because you're basically looking slantwise along the ground, along the terrain. But there were astronomers who in back in the 50s and 60s actually took pictures and then they projected them on white spheres then they would move a camera around so you were directly above the the place on the far side of the moon in that in that uh, 60 percent where you could not see it directly from the earth but you could see it vertically in a photographic projection and they got some very interesting maps that were then compared to the first missions to the far side, which photographed the other side of the moon, the far side, including the parts that we never can see. Anyway, the, the, the Chinese have been incredibly ambitious and successful in sending spacecraft now, two robots, to the moon. Unlike, as I said a couple of weeks ago, um, previous history in terms of Mars, in the mission they've sent to Mars now, called Tianwen, questioning heaven. They have not followed the same procedure that the rest of the nations that have gone to Mars have followed, which is you you fly by first, you then orbit, you then orbit with a lander, you land the lander, and then you send an orbiter and the lander and the lander has a rover. Um, they haven't done that. They've done everything in one fell swoop. So the Tianwan mission carries is, is an orbiter which carries a lander the lander has a rover and they're going to try to accomplish all of this in the next uh, uh, seven months when it gets there sometime in february but they have said very curiously and we're going to talk about this later in the show that instead of landing the lander immediately they're going to wait several months and as i said last time and i'm going to reiterate again that's kind of curious because we have extraordinary maps of Mars, courtesy of NASA and the Japanese and the Russians in part. And so why the Chinese are waiting, what their orbiter can do in terms of mapping their intended landing site, of which there are two, um, I'm not quite sure because we know they have access to the NASA database because in their poster, officially announcing their mission, they have framed their lander on Mars against a NASA photograph from Curiosity. So we know they have access to the NASA database, so why are they waiting? Well, that's another thing which we'll 
talk about with my guest as the morning progresses. If you look at item number three, this is a kind of a current update on the status of NASA's current mission, because a few days after the Arabs and a few more days after the uh, uh, Chinese, NASA was able to launch its new rover called Perseverance. Remember, there's a previous rover there called uh, Curiosity, and two others which are now defunct named Spirit and Opportunity, and one launched back in 1997, actually it got there in 97, called um, uh, Sojourner. Um, so what they're doing with, with at NASA now is this new mission, the Perseverance mission, is the first mission since Viking, if you can believe it. I mean, Viking was sent to Mars in 1976, summer of 76. I spent an extraordinary summer on Mars, um, metaphorically speaking, uh, during the Viking summer. But we haven't sent spacecraft to Mars, meaning NASA has not, for no decades, capable of finding life. The Perseverance rover, attested to by many notables, including the current administrator of NASA himself, uh, uh, James Bridenstine, has reiterated not only is the Perseverance rover going to be capable of finding ancient life, but also it's going to be capable of detecting current life. And that opens up an extraordinary window of all kinds of intriguing possibilities, many of which we're going to be discussing this morning with, with my guest. Item number four. Um, it's an anniversary. It's eight years since the Curiosity rover got to Mars. Eight long years. Remember, these missions are nominally targeted at 90 days, you know, and then the, you know, kind of guarantee, the warranty is supposed to elapse and anything after that is, is uh, gravy. Well, this rover which is nuclear-powered and whose wheels are literally um, uh, going to rack and ruin, the surface of Mars turns out to be very hard on the aluminum wheels on the Curiosity rover. I think Perseverance has uh, sterner wheels. I think they're made of titanium this time because in rolling across Mars, it turns out there's all kinds of very sharp stuff which has been puncturing the wheels of the Curiosity rover to the point where some wondered whether it would actually make it up the slopes of uh, Mount Sharp and get to one of its eventual targets, an area on the upper slope that, uh, again, we're going to talk about later in the show. So it's eight years for Curiosity still going strong. Perseverance will get there in February of 2021, specifically on February 18th, and after it lands... For some reason, the Chinese are going to wait for several months until they land their rover on Mars. And again, that's kind of an interesting development, which we will talk to in a bit. Item number five. For those of you who follow the show very closely, you know that several months ago, we made a big deal of the fact that the Mars Express Orbiter, which is the European Space Agency's uh, spacecraft, which has been, I think, in the game uh, orbiting Mars since 2003. It carried a little camera on board that was designed as an engineering camera to basically uh, video or televise the deployment of the Beagle lander from the uh, Mars Express orbiter. The Beagle lander, as you may or may not remember, crashed on Mars. They recently, in the last couple of three years, found orbital reconnaissance imagery of the landing site, or I should say the crash site. And um, so it did not make it to the surface the way it was intended many years ago. But the camera that videoed its departure from the Mars Express mothercraft uh, was repurposed at some point during the mission by some bright guys in ESA who said, hmm, maybe we can reconfigure the software so it can automatically give us daily global pictures of Mars from this engineering color camera. And that's exactly what they did. So they've been publishing now for years and years a steady stream of these beautiful images taken by this, quote, engineering camera. 
And on those daily images, several years ago, we began to notice a pattern. As you may or may not remember, Mars sports three enormous, what are called shield volcanoes, all clustered on one side of Mars in a place called the Tharsis Uplift, or if you're being more colloquial, the so-called Tharsis Bulge. Uh, this is an area of Mars that literally sticks up very high uh, at about 19.5 degrees, for those of you who are following along in your in your hymnals at home. Uh, that's where Olympus Mons, the biggest of these volcanoes, sits. Well, right next door, there are three others uh, whose names, you know, I always keep forgetting. Uh, but one of them is named Arceomons. That's the southern one. And every once in a while, Arceomons will sport a cloud which extends out for thousands of miles in the western direction, blown by the winds. And for many years, uh, planetary astronomers argued that what we were seeing was simply the, the Martian atmosphere having to rise up and go over the top of this very tall shield volcano, which stretches miles up into the atmosphere. I forget how many miles you know, three or four, something like that. And that's called orogenic uplift, and we see it occurring, you know, with mountain ranges all the time on Earth. Um, but now they've kind of changed their tune a little bit, and they're talking about the fact that it's back. Because if you take a look at number five, there's a photograph taken a few days ago from this uh, Mars Express engineering camera. This extraordinary plume of cloud-like material extending out behind, in terms of the wind stream, Arceomons, is back. Now, when we discussed this many months ago, I talked about potential volcanic activity, and I was forecasting that the um, the Marsophiles who are looking at this saying, oh, it's just orogenic clouds or orogenic uplift, why don't the other major volcanoes do this at the same time? Why is it only Arceomons? Well, my suspicion is there's something going on under Arceomons, this big shield volcano, the southern of the three next to Olympus, and it's it's literally emitting water vapor from the volcano. And that water vapor is, is condensing in the thin and cold Martian atmosphere and streaming out behind the mountain for, as I said, over a thousand miles. And that indicates that there's something going on live inside Mars underneath that volcano that may or may not indicate potential active volcanism even if we're not talking lava if we're talking enough heating to vaporize uh, let's say water vapor in the permafrost around Arceomons that would qualify as an interesting intrinsic Mars uh, development anyway when the previous images were sent back we did not have on the surface of Mars what we have on the surface of Mars tonight, which is NASA's InSight Martian Lander, which is, you know, several, I guess maybe a thousand miles away, upstream. If there is kind of some kind of major volcanic activity burbling under Mars, one would expect that the InSight seismometer, which I revealed yesterday, has now given us profiles of Martian crust and Martian mantle, and Martian core in terms of reflected seismic waves. Um, that's now been published, and I forgot to actually post uh, that in my section. So can the, if you can go and grab from last night and put in under uh, number five the InSight you know, uh, seismometer results, uh, that would be very useful. And then we'll make number six, number seven, and number seven, number eight, etc. Okay, moving down to six. We're going to get into this with uh, my guest in a little while. The Chinese, when they launched their mission, they put out a very interesting poster graphic to advertise what they're about to do in the next several months. Nice, beautiful artwork of their lander with the um, uh, rover sitting on top and the little tracks leading down to the surface and all that. And, you know, when you look at it quickly, it looks like it's just a picture. Well, it's not exactly just an artistic representation. Because if you look at number seven, which is a close-up of what is depicted on number six in the current um, numbering, 
behind the Chinese lander, lo and behold, they have chosen to picture their lander in front of something which looks extraordinarily like a set of ancient Martian ruins. Let me say that again. The Chinese, for some arcane reason, have chosen to depict their lander set against a Martian landscape which looks for all the world like a set of ancient Martian ruins. And we're going to discuss this, I imagine, at some length with my guest. Uh, items 8 in the current numbering and 9 we're going to save for when we get into the conversation with Mark Hartzman. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce my guest. According to abcnews.com, Mark Hartzman is, quote, one of America's leading connoisseurs of the bazaar. His passion for the unusual began at an early age, influenced by Ripley's Believe It or Not and the annual Guinness Books. In addition to his books about Mars, Oliver Cromwell's Embalmed Head, Weird Things on eBay, Sideshow Performers, and Unorthodox Messages from God, Hartzman has written for Mental Floss, The Huffington Post, AOL, Weird News, and Bizarre Magazine. He's discussed oddities on CNN, MSNBC, Ripley's Radio, and the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum. When he's not writing about life's peculiarities, he writes about various goods and services in the advertising industry. So without further ado, Mark Hartsman, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Thanks, Richard. Good to be here. Well, I got to say, that's one of the most uninformative bios I have ever read. So let's throw that out, and let me start by asking you, how the hell did you get into what you're doing? <laughs> uh, are you talking about Mars or in No, everything. Let's start with, who is Mark Hartzman? What was his education? Where did he grow up? When did he look at the world and say, well, the weird stuff is far more interesting than the normal boring stuff, and decide to write a whole series of books about the weird stuff? Well, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Ah, just north of as you, Oh, yeah. Um, as you mentioned, you know, I, I did love watching Ripley's when I was a kid. You know, I watched The Elephant Man when I was probably too young to watch it, and it really stuck in my brain. Um, with the Guinness Book of Records, you know, it came out every year. It was sort of those thick black and white books at the time. And every year I would go through those first few pages with the human oddities. And I was I was just so fascinated by Robert Wadlow in particular, who was the tallest man who's ever lived. Now was now was, have inches tall. Was this where you when you were a kid or in college or high school or whatever? No, this was this was like a kid, like you know, like ten. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So so I just really really got into this, and I, you know, every year they'd have different pictures. You know, we didn't have the internet back then, so you'd wait for the pictures to come out in the, in the Guinness Book, and they'd always be a little bit different. And that was just one of those things, like, just extraordinary how different the human body could be. And so I really got fascinated. So then I'll jump forward to college. And in, toward the end of college, I started writing a zine. It was called Backwash. And it was just like a little publication I would make, and I'd start to distribute. And eventually I, I got some, some decent distribution through Tower Records. People remember Tower Records from the days when you would go to a music store. And, uh, and as I was doing that, I started to get more into the sideshow world again. Um, I'd seen the movie Freaks from 1932, which was completely fascinating to me, you know, with all real sideshow freaks in this movie. You won't see anything like that again on film. Um, and then I met a guy named Johnny Fox, who was a sword swallower and he had a museum on the Lower East Side of Manhattan called the Freakatorium. And when I met him, he just had this, this amazing collection, just filling the walls and the ceilings and the cabinets with all kinds of sideshow memorabilia, you know, uh, cabinet cards and and various pieces, you know, Tom Thumb shoes, for example, and his vest, just all kinds of amazing artifacts. And I got to know him, and I wrote about him for my magazine. And uh, and then as I met, so as this, I talked, this, this, this magazine, I mean, this is the era when fanzines, yeah, covering that's what it was, covering movies and television shows, and you know, fans just got so wrapped up, like in Star Trek, they would start whole novels there's a huge cottage industry in novels on star trek written by fans so you decided in college to start a fanzine devoted to the weird 
It was kind of, well, I kind of started off devoted to whatever I was into. And that was usually something weird. And when I was, <laughs> when I was a kid, jumping back to being like 10 years old or 12 years old, you know, when I first got an Apple II Plus in like 1984, I was making little newsletters, you know, which were kind of weird. And I looked back at those when I was in college and kind of laughed at what I had done when I was 12 or 11. And that's kind of what made me think, like, I should do this again. But now I could do it a lot better. You know, I have better tools. Um, I'm older. Did you did you do art? Did you did you do cartoons? Did you do like graphic novel stuff? I actually, you know, I did cartoons all through college. For I went to Syracuse University, and I did cartoons for the school newspaper Ah. uh, for about four years. So I I did that. I didn't do too much for the magazine, a little bit, Um, but you know, it was a lot of covering different music, and and uh, eventually, like I said, it got more and more sideshow related, and that's what built up a network of. Of different connections and you know people I'd met to be able to do my book American Sideshow. So that was your first book on the unusual. Yeah, I mean my first book was found on eBay, which was also covering lots of unusual items, and there's some sideshow items in there, and that was kind of sparked by meeting Johnny and seeing that he had gotten a lot of things on eBay. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize you could buy all these weird things on eBay. This was like 2001 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started finding really weird things on eBay that. I thought objectively would be weird to anyone, not just, you know, certain collectors might like it, but just really weird things like a deer poop paperweight, which I thought was funny that the seller called a pooperweight. Wait, wait, wait. And like, write, a, like, like, like a what? A, a paperweight made out with a deer poop. And deer a poop glass paperweight. Thing. Yes, and she called it a pooperweight. I thought this was great, you know, and I would write her funny letters and I would get the, you know, her response and, and did this for lots of different sellers. And so I put all those together into a book with the photographs of the items and what they sold for and our correspondence back and forth. So that was kind of like my first publication, um, published book with the odd, but the magazine kind of led up to all of that. Hmm. So what is it you th- that did you think attracts you to what the conventional mainstream would consider to be weird? Because to me, pet rocks were always weird. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you know, lots of fads are kind of weird. I, I just like—I don't know. I just always have been attracted to things that are sort of odd and different. And I mean, to me, they're much more interesting, right? Like, there's enough people writing about the normal things out there, right? So, I—I I like to be able to share these things. I just find completely fascinating and odd. And when I look at them, like, how could someone not be amazed by this story? You know, I think the lives that sideshow performers live—they're just—they're they're really incredible. I mean, here were people born. Uh, with all these different anomalies and they found these ways to overcome them and to find camaraderie and to travel the world and to make a living and to find love and have a family, you know, a hundred years ago when these things were much harder for someone to do with that, with any, any sort of anomaly. So I find those stories interesting. I love to be able to share them with people. Well, it's an obvious story of overcoming great odds and, and succeeding and be, you know, being happy and content in, in your Shall we say unusualness? Sixty seconds. I tell you what, hold it there. Um, we've we've got a, a break coming up here. My guest this okay. morning is Mark Hartsman. He's an author of a lot of books dealing with the unusual. You know, I don't like to stereotype and call stuff weird because one person's weird is another person's day-to-day activity. You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to be talking about Mars tonight and definitely the unusual. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're on the other side of midnight. We shall return. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, 
explore and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. The Side of the News can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, August 9th, 2020. Um, it's a beautiful night in the land of enchantment. It's a little humid. We've had this persistent set of air currents coming from the Gulf. It's a lot more humid than I seem to remember in any previous years, which, of course, goes with all the other weird stuff that was going on, which is the perfect segue to getting back to Mark. Mark, one of the things that I'm struck by is that when you decided to do this first book, your focus seemed to be not on the weird, but on how these people created normal lives amid the so-called weird. Well, I mean, that's true. A lot of people were, you know, making making money off of these weird items and trying to start a business selling strange things on eBay. And some of them did quite well. I think for some, it was just extra cash, you know, a little bit of a hobby. Um, but there was no shortage of just bizarre items. And uh, what I really loved was no matter what sort of weird question I asked them, always just trying to, you know, ask them something equally as weird as the object they were selling. They would always come back um, liking the idea and trying to make their sale. Like, so, for example, someone was selling a hornet's nest and they noted that the, there were no hornets inside of it. But I wanted them to <laughs> confirm it for me. I told them that I thought that I would like to use this for my child's uh, birthday party as a pinata. And I wanted to make sure no horns would fall out. And so he wrote back and, and he's like, yeah, you know, I never thought of that before, but it would make a great pinata for a kid's party. I'm like, okay, hmm. not going to do that, but thanks. You know, so they were always um, perfectly willing to uh, answer my questions and again, push for a sale however they could. Hmm. I was thinking actually in that question more in terms of the people that are like circus performers, you know, the the uh, sideshow in, in, in carnivals and circuses where people who are unusual to say the least have found, made for themselves, you know, a real life in the midst of, quote, normalcy. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, again, like I said, that's part of what's so extraordinary about how they were able to really succeed. I mean, 
you have someone like Tom Thumb, who was a millionaire, you know, in the, the mid 1800s. Um, so, so a lot of them did really well. I mean, the freaks were the stars of the sideshow. And, uh, and for the most part, they did well. I mean, not, not always, you know, there were cases where they, they weren't making as much as maybe they should have. Um, but they, they did well for themselves. And again, it's a time when, you know, if you weren't in a sideshow, first of all, people were going to stare at you no matter what, because people are curious and we're innately curious if we see something different, we look. Um, but a lot of them might have just been, you know, institutionalized or, or even hidden away at home. Um, you know, families may have been ashamed of, of people that were born different. It's just the, the way it was then. You know, that was just the culture of the time. Mm. So this was a, you know, an outlet for them. And, you know, I kind of love some of the stories where you hear about, you know, a giant and a little person and, you know, maybe conjoined twins and an armless guy and a legless guy. And they're, you know, they're all a family now. You know, they can hang out backstage, they can play cards and they have that, you know, camaraderie ship uh, as they travel around the country or even the world. Um, and they wouldn't have found that elsewhere. You know, that would have been harder for them to, to come by. So what was the reaction to your to your first book? Uh, found on eBay. Well, it was, you know, it was pretty fun. <laughs> People seemed to like it. Uh, got some good press, um, which was exciting. And, uh, you know, I, obviously eBay has picked up, I think, Steam since then. You know, it's hugely popular, of course. Um, but it was great. And it just kind of got me going into uh into doing more books on other odd things like i mentioned you know kind of stemmed from my experiences at the freakatorium and and so it kind of led more into the sideshow world which was the second book um but yeah it was great you know it was one of those things too where you know i mentioned the magazine i was doing the zine and i was putting so much time and effort into that and you know those things don't make a lot of money at all <laughs> it's truly a labor of love so i thought hey you know, authoring anything usually doesn't make a lot of money. Yes, well, true, but but better than the zine. <laughs> so I decided, you know, if I could put that passion and energy into uh, a bigger project like a book, maybe it'd be more worth uh, my while. So so that worked out. So after um, after American Sideshow, I stopped doing the zine and uh, just focused on doing more book projects. And all these book projects, by the way, were, were side projects to my day job of, in advertising. Um, so yeah, I was I was going to ask what, 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 when you were doing the zine in college, what were you studying to become? What was your passion? What was your major? What was the thing that you wanted to kind of do with the rest of your life? Well, so I'll go back to my childhood, and uh, you know I mentioned first of all that I was making like newsletters on my Apple II Plus with a program called Newsroom. If anyone remembers that. Um, first desk, desktop publishing program back then. So I was always like a really creative kid. You know, I, I used to make my own magazines. I was influenced by Mad Magazine. I made a magazine called Smashed, you know, made like 16 issues on my own and used to imagine one day I'll have a thing on a, a shelf somewhere that people could buy. Um, so I also watched a lot of Bewitched as a kid. Ah. And I got really into Bewitched and Darren Stevens, you know, was an advertising executive, so he was always making ads. And of course, Samantha would, you know, wiggle her nose and make everything was that, better. Was that the guy played by Dick York, or was he the second actor? It was uh, Dick York and then Dick Sargent. Ah, they so they, they, that's right. There were two Richards. That's why kept them yes. confused. Yeah, right, right. So, so then at some point, um, as a teenager, uh, my mom suggested because I was always doing creative things. She said maybe you should think about advertising. And I thought, oh, yeah, like, you know, I can be witched. So I thought that would be fun, a uh, fun way to, you know, be creative and get paid for thinking of ideas. And so I went to Syracuse knowing that they had a great communications program, good reputation. I visited. I love the school. So I did a dual major in advertising and also in political philosophy and, uh, you know, had a great professor there um, who really helped me get started and uh, get my first job coming out of school. So I've been I've been writing ads, making commercials, and whatever other kinds of experiences um, I could do. Last year, I did a great experience to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, which was which was great because it was kind of bringing my outside interest into work, uh, which doesn't happen too often with all these weird things I'm usually into. Hmm. So you're basically a throwback to the era of Mad Men. Um, you could say that it was always kind of fun watching Mad Men and seeing the elements that are still somewhat true today and what's changed. Hmm. It's funny because there's really no, uh, there's really no agencies on Madison Avenue anymore. Isn't that interesting? Has it all gone yeah. to the internet? 
oh, it's just moved around the city a lot. It's really hardly anything on Madison Avenue. Everyone still calls it Madison Avenue, you know, like the advertising world, but uh, they've all moved away from there. <laughs> so you don't find too many agencies there anymore. And I imagine now with every corporation looking at a way people can work from home, there's going to be a huge bunch of people like you that never need to go to an office again if you don't want to. Yeah, I'm very curious how it's going to affect things that way because we're all getting used to Zoom. You know, it's working pretty well. Um, it helps, you know, not dealing with the commute is great. I'm wondering just how agencies will, will look at it financially, thinking, well, we don't need to pay all this overhead for an office necessarily if we can function just fine this way. So we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see how real estate in Manhattan takes a hit um, as time goes on with, with the situation we're in. We have all these huge buildings devoted to nothing but but staff and maintenance and upkeep and executives. and I mean, it's like if you can do it all by computer, imagine all the gas you save, all the pollution, all the environmental impact. I mean, Arthur Clark told me many, many years ago when he was serving me tea at the Chelsea, he said, you know, Dick, this is back in the, in the 70s, 80s. He said, any man who has more than a 30-second commute from office to home is a fool. (laughs) (laughs) And in those days, it was impossible for most people to operate like Arthur Clarke did, who, of course, was a writer, and he wrote from home, and he sent his stuff, you know, halfway around the world to be published. Now, everybody who deals in information can do exactly what Arthur said smart people should be doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, his predictions were great. I mean, I think there's a, a pretty famous clip from, I want to say, was it the early 60s where he talks about the future and if it seems anything remotely like uh, conceivable, then then it's not, and it's wrong, basically. <laughs> yes. It'll just be so fantastic that you'd have to think that I'm crazy for, for my prediction to be potentially true. And, I mean, he was he was spot on with so many of his ideas. Yeah, I mean, here we are kind of living it. I mean, the, you know, the, I have to say, like, you know, there's something nice about being with people, you know, in an office in person, and there's certainly a benefit to that. But, you know, we're fortunate that we have technology to get us through this, this pandemic right now to, to keep things flowing. Well, you know, when we get past this pandemic, and my grandmother used to say, you know, aren't you glad it didn't come to stay? You know, Bible quotes, you know, when it came to pass and it came to pass. She said to a neighbor one day, well, aren't you glad it didn't come to stay? This too will pass. But when it does, I don't think we're going to reconstitute those aspects of society the same way because it's one thing to have to go to the office every day, to make the commute, to sit like in Los Angeles for two hours in traffic and all that incredible inefficiency. But what if you only had to meet like at a restaurant and a bar to get together with people on your time that you work with on Skype and Zoom, and there'll be obviously even even better apps developed, so that when you get together with them, it's because you want to, not because you have to. I mean, that would be fantastic, you know. And I mean, it's interesting because in a, a business like I'm in with advertising as a creative, going to places like you just mentioned with you know with your partner is a great way to work. You know, getting away from the office. And just going to a place where you can just sit and talk and, and bad ideas back and forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's how it usually gets done. Um, when I first started, I did a lot of that. That was before we had cell phones, you know, and, and text messaging constantly. So if you left the office with your partner, you know, I, I used to work in um, by Union Square at that time in New York City, and we could just go hang out at the park and think of ideas and come back a few hours later. And you know, <laughs> if we weren't there, then we weren't there. <laughs> well, you know, it, it looks to me. Back. It looks to me like somebody at the high levels of government, you know, in this Trump administration, is looking ahead because they have reinstituted in the IRS codes the three martini lunch. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, somebody's really smart because they realize that with this new mode of living. Business will be conducted over dinners and restaurants and outside in patios and in bars. And it won't be in offices. It'll be back to the way, you know, Don Draper used to really make the sale, which was not in that office. Right. The two-hour lunch. Yeah. With the three martinis. With the three martinis. I remember Tavern on the Green (laughs) so well when I worked at the Hayden. 
It was kind of just across the the, the, the park from me. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, we could get lost in that for the next three hours. After the success of the first book, when you decided to go really into the strange in terms of books, what was the next one in, in your kind of to-do list? What did you what fascinated you next? After the sideshow book. Mm-hmm. So so after the sideshow book, you know, I always keep a list of ideas. Um, so I don't remember if I had a specific thing I wanted to do next. Um, actually, maybe I did. I had a, I, I had one that didn't get published, but I was trying, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which was, um, I think this was around the dot-com bubble bursting in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I was, I was posting these crazy jobless things and seeing if people would respond just because people wanted some kind of work no matter what. And, uh, and I had some fun with that and got people to do some, some interesting things with resumes and, uh, but that didn't go anywhere. Um, but it was entertaining and I think people had some fun with it. Uh, but the next book I did was called God made me do it. And that one kind of came out of the idea that, <laughs> you know, you hear a lot about like, like I love sports. I'm a who was, who was that famous member. comedian who used to use that as a tagline? God made me do it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure offhand. I don't remember either, but I know that it was out there. And it well, was... it's it, it it's certainly a, a people's favorite excuse, I think, <laughs> for doing weird things. No, no, no. But, the know, favorite one is the dog ate my homework. That's that's the yeah, top. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I think as you grow up and things get worse, you got to blame it on God. But um, you know, like I said, I grew up in Denver, so I was a huge Broncos fan, huge Nuggets fan. So I watch a lot of sports. And I'm always amazed at the end of the game when you hear people, you know, thank God for them getting the win. And I would just picture like, you know, how does God have any time to, to pay attention to football? You know, I got almost 7 billion people on the planet. People are praying all the time. There's a lot of stuff going on. If he's focused on football, you know, it's a little disturbing. Um, <laughs> and why would he pick one team over another team anyway? You know, that doesn't make sense. And how would he change teams every year? Because he always got different Super Bowl winners. So, again, none of that. This just always seemed kind of odd to me. Not to right. like, you know, to – to uh, knock anyone's beliefs, but I just found it odd personally. So, um, so I started looking into different things that people think God tell them, and I found a ton of material. So that got put together into this book called God Made Me Do It, and the book just features a lot of different real quotes from people saying, you know, God told me to do this, and the Lord said I needed to do this. Um, it ranges from just the weird and wacky and hilarious to the really disturbing and horrific, you know, cutting off a limb. Or, you know, uh, cannibalism, like all sorts of crazy things. Or just like building a, a giant uh, Jesus out of 30,000 toothpicks. Or juggling outside of a, a hospice to try to help someone recover. So, you know, just all kinds of weird things. And so you have the quotes from all these different people and then a little bit of context about the news story that was going on at the time. So that, that came after American Sideshow. By the way, I think I got my, my memory... Faulty. The, the 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 quote I was thinking of was the devil made me do it. Oh yeah. And and Keith uh, Morgan, who's our uh, backup IT expert tonight, he says it was Flip Wilson, who had that as his famous tagline. Mm. You know, for a while I thought I might be able to do a sequel called The Devil Made Me Do It. <laughs> <laughs> I started collecting quotes of people saying that too, but that was actually getting quite dark, um, and I. I kept some of the more disturbing stories out of the book just because they were, they were really disturbing. <laughs> I wanted to keep the book. A well, it more introduced even. you, I guess, to the spectrum of human, uh, what would we say, human activity, human foibles, human predilections. Well, how would you term it? Uh, uh, maybe human capabilities, and mm. uh, uh, you know the the depths that people can go uh, in terms of, I guess, what they think they need to do and. And just how dark that can get, um, and like I said, it, you know, it's kind of balanced by the the lightness too. Just sort of the the strange and sort of silly things that they think God wants them to do, you know. And why why is God asking you to do this anyway? Um, so you know, it was it was definitely a fun little book to do. Um, like I said, no shortage of material. It's, I mean, you can. I think if you Google the phrase "God told me to," um, you find a news story. You know, almost every day coming up with something bizarre. Yep. Yep. Okay, so you're on a roll. Uh, what was the next project? Um, the next one after that was was kind of a the easiest book to write, which was the Anti-Social Network Journal. And I and I say it was the easiest book to write because it's a journal, so it's blank. 
um, <laughs> except for the notion of a, a few lines of kind of peppering the book throughout the bomb of the pages, just sort of poking fun at our addictions to social media. And so the subtitle to this book was a private place for all the thoughts, ideas, and plans you don't want to share. So just reminding people that sometimes, you know, you don't have to put everything out there for everybody to read <laughs> and you can put some ideas in this book. And so, you know, I just had, like I said, just lots of different little headlines kind of, again, poking fun at, uh, at our addictions. So that was, that was kind of a fun, easy one. Um, after that, I kind of got back to the more strange, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I find something strange, I love to share it with people. So I was, uh, I had read about a story about phrenology and, uh, for those folks that do not remember, what's phrenology? So, sort of a, a early science in the start, I think, late late 1700s. Basically, they would feel your skull, feel the ridges and bumps on your head, and try to read your personality based on the shape ah. of your skull. And and this, people believed in this. They would map out the entire skull. Um, so, to study phrenology, you had to get a skull. And usually the skulls you could get were of executed prisoners. And so the skulls you could study and that you could get a hold of without digging up too many bodies of, you know, regular people, good citizens, um, you, you would have to just study a lot of criminals. And so there was a guy who was really into phrenology early on who was good friends with Joseph Haydn, the composer. Mm. Haydn was a, you know, musical genius, right? Yep. And this guy was younger, the friend, and he knew Haydn was going to die soon. So he was determined to get Haydn's head uh, when he died and study the head of a genius so he could make some more breakthroughs in phrenology and show the differences between a genius and a criminal. Um, so he did. He, uh, <laughs> when Haydn died, you know, there was a war going on, so he was just sort of didn't get like a big state funeral or anything like that at the time. He paid off the grave digger, went in one night late and sawed off Haydn's head, brought oh it home, um, boiled it, and uh, took all fowl the flesh and kept the skull. Um, and that skull then kind of got passed around for the next 145 years until it was returned with Haydn's body. So when I read about that, I thought this is just fascinating. You know, and I'd heard other stories about posthumous body parts like Galileo's fingers, which are on display in Florence right now. Um, you can go see them. And I thought there's just something interesting about these body parts that travel, you know, after life and have these adventures. So along that research, I came across Oliver Cromwell's embalmed head. And uh, just quick recap on Oliver Cromwell, if people aren't familiar, he was the Lord Protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland um, following the English Civil War in the mid-1600s. So he led the execution of Charles I. Uh, so the first time a king was beheaded and the monarchy came to an end in England. <clears throat> so Cromwell, you know, he ruled for a few years and then he died and his body was embalmed and it was buried in uh, Westminster Abbey. Then a few years later, uh, Charles II restored the monarchy, and uh, he was kind of angry that his dad got beheaded. Hmm. So he exhumed Cromwell's body, and uh, then he hanged him and uh, beheaded him uh, for everyone to see, and kind of as a message to people like, hey, don't come after me, don't kill your king, or this is what happens to you. So Cromwell's embalmed head got put on top of a pike, um, piece of you know iron tip going through the skull, and put on top of Westminster Hall. And it stayed up there for 25 years. Good grief. And eventually a storm came by and knocked it down to the ground. And a guard picked it up and took it home. And from there it got passed on for another 275 years until it was reburied in 1960 at Sydney Sussex College uh, at Cambridge, where Cromwell had attended school. So the head traveled for 300 years. So when I found that story, I thought, this is great. I mean, I thought that Joseph Haydn for 145 years was a long time, but this guy traveled for 300 years. And I thought, I'm going to write the memoirs of the head. I'm going to follow his journey for 300 years and give it all from the head's perspective, which was for me a lot of fun because it got into all sorts of different historical events going on. I mean, I followed the, the real timeline, but then I had to infuse some imagined anecdotes, you know, obviously to fill some gaps along the way. Hmm. But it also was a fun way to examine. Um, death and what happens is there a consciousness after death and if there is what does that look like what, what does it mean for for ideas like burial you know is that it is that being trapped you know forever in darkness um, for eternity and from Cromwell's perspective uh the best thing that happened to him was that he was exhumed and he got to at least see the world with his own hmm. you know, eyes so to speak again 
it's something that's all kind of actually goes back to my childhood again something that's always sort of plagued me of wondering like what if this is wrong what if we're screwing up with burial that would suck you know so um so this was a way to explore that theme through the head of oliver cromwell and again like i said go through all sorts of pieces of history um for 300 years in 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 charting the course of the uh, perambulations of cromwell's head did you encounter uh like ghost experiences seances attempts to contact Cromwell to see how he was doing, if he liked it, that kind of thing? I, I absolutely did. Um, spiritualism is a big interest of mine. It's actually the subject, partly part of the subject of my new book that I'm working on now. Ah. And so I did put Cromwell into, so I'll back up for one second. So after about 150 years or so, Cromwell's head fell into the hands of a particular family for the next five generations. So I put uh, one of those those members of that family I, during the Victorian era. I had him become a spiritualist because so many people were, so it would make some sense. And I did have him take the head to a seance where the medium was trying to contact the spirits of Oliver Cromwell. And of course, you know, I kind of had fun with it because Cromwell having consciousness by the rules I set with the book is hearing all this and he's answering the questions. But, of course, the medium is giving his own answers. And so Cromwell's like, no, that's not what I said, you know. <laughs> so I, I did have some fun with them trying to contact Cromwell. And, and Cromwell, at the beginning, hoping that maybe this thing would work. You know, maybe this, maybe there's something to this seance thing. So he yeah, was Mark, open to it. Let me ask you one thing. Can you move back just a little bit? We're, we're kind of popping our peas on your mic. So. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Thank you. Hopefully this is better. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so Cromwell held out some hope that this thing might work, uh, but of course it didn't. But yeah, it was fun to explore, again, ways that he might be able to connect. I did have him connect with the head of uh, Joseph Haydn at a phrenologist, because Cromwell's head was studied by a phrenologist in the 1800s. And so I pulled some real quotes from the journal uh, of the guy giving his analysis of Cromwell's head. So it was fun for him to hear that, but at the same time have a conversation with the head of Joseph Haydn, and they could kind of swap stories about being dead and learn from each other. Well, to do that realistically, you had to do a heck of a lot of research, I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. There was a lot of research in terms of, obviously, Cromwell's life, but also of the era. And I tried to be as accurate as I could, even to the point where, with my vocabulary, I would check any any kind of you know, more complicated word. I would double-check, like, was this word even in use at that time? Um because if, if the word wasn't in use in, like, say, 1680, I didn't want to be having Cromwell use the word, you know. So I got down to that kind of level and, and, you know, describing different characters, seeing what the styles were like at the time. So when Cromwell's observing people, um, he could comment on them, even down to the fact that, you know, people wore, wore wigs back then a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And then as time goes on, they're not wearing wigs, and he's wondering about that, you know. So, <laughs> you know, Cromwell's wondering about all sorts of things changing around him. Um, so there was a lot of research in terms of his life, the events, and the events around him, the styles and cultures at the time. Um, so it was, it was uh, you know, learned a lot. It was a fascinating journey. I went to England and was able to go to Sydney Sussex College and visit where the head is buried. You know, it's buried in the Anti Chapel. So the exact spot isn't known, but to stand in that area was interesting to know where he had been at that time. Hmm. Tell you what, we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Mark Hartsman. We're talking about oddities, weirdnesses, unusual things. In our next hour, we're going to go to a very strange place for most people, certainly back in the time when this fascination developed, the planet Mars. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. 
You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.